0: Then you may be seated, and if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be starting this evening. I also want to encourage you that if you did not watch Rashawn Frost's message from last week, please, please do so. I also want to assure you that we are not wearing the same shirt in the video. I did get a text about that. They are different. The pockets are different. And what I've done is, now you want to go look, don't you? But seriously, go back, because Rashawn did a phenomenal job, and it was one of those things where uh, we got rained out, so we had to run in, and we actually recorded it in the uh, studio, which is kind of funny to say if you've ever seen it. And there was about eight of us in the studio with him as he was able to record it, and I was just, he got done preaching, and I said, "Rashawn, did you actually go back and watch all the messages we've done? And he said, uh, no, why, should I? I said, no, you like tied them all in so well together and then led into what we're talking about next week. It was definitely something that only the Holy Spirit could could guide. So again, I really encourage you to go back and listen to his message from last week. This evening, I want to reiterate something we've kind of talked about in this uh, series we're doing called Becoming Disciples. What What is discipleship? And we've mentioned it before as so many people, uh, if you've grown up in churches, uh, discipleship seems like this unicorn. Like you're chasing after something and you're not sure if it really exists or not because you've never really seen it done. You've heard about it. You've seen people talk about it, but you've yet to actually see it yourself. And we've come up with different ways to summarize. Now we've always said discipleship the way that we define it is it's helping someone move one step closer in the relationship with God. Uh, Cam kind of introduced the, the saying, discipleship is a relationship with a vision. It has a, a mission to it. But this evening, I want to tell you that discipleship is, and, and how to go about it, simply put, discipleship is life together. Discipleship is life together. Together, If you think about it, I think there's between 55 and 65 passages that talk about one another in the Bible. One another. Here's how you treat one another. So much of the Bible, is, the entire Bible is about relationships, both our relationship with God, God's relationship to us, and then our relationship with how we treat others. So tonight I want to do what I'll call a character study. I want to take an individual of the Bible that maybe you've heard of before, maybe not. Uh, If you've been coming here for any length of time for the last two years, while we were going through the book of Acts, we talked briefly about this character. But I want to look at what I'm calling the discipleship lessons of Barnabas. The discipleship lessons of Barnabas. Now, when my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, we did what a lot of you may have done with your firstborn is you buy every book on pregnancy and birth that there is so that you can learn all about it as soon as possible because you're not gonna tell anybody, but you're a nervous wreck. And one of the books that was, I can't remember if it was given to us, we bought was called Natural Childbirth. And we had it in our house and I think one of my siblings was visiting and he goes, how funny is that that now we have to buy books on natural childbirth when the majority of the world still does that And for the longest history of the world, that's always what they did. Nobody had to learn it or buy a book on it. It's how they were brought into the world. It's how everybody around them would bring children into the world. There were no hospitals or doctors or anything. I'd never really thought about it before. But recently I had a discipleship pastor ask me about discipleship. And he was curious why we were spending so long talking about it. And he said, isn't that something that just happens, like, at a church? I don't know why you're spending all summer on it and reading a book on it. And I thought about the natural childbirth book. That, unfortunately, I think discipleship has been forgotten or been replaced with different programs, or it's just assumed it's happening, or we view it as that unicorn we're chasing after that we just cannot catch. So in the context of the Bible, in the context of what we see, understand that there was this discipleship or mentorship or apprenticeship relationship that happened all the time. If you were born and your father was a carpenter, chances are you were going to be a carpenter. From a young age, you would start learning from your father how to do that. If your your ideas changed about what you wanted to do, you would have an apprenticeship with somebody else to learn a different trade. And so over a long period of time, you would slowly learn from spending time with the person that you were working with, whether it be your father, whether it was through an apprenticeship. And that was just commonplace. So the idea of discipleship in the New Testament wasn't any different from that. It was spending time together. There wasn't necessarily a college you went to. And we can get lost in the, I I can get lost in the context here, but understand that this was just something that actually was naturally happening because it's what happened in life in general. And so we've lost some of that in our culture. You can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. You just got to chase your dreams. My father did this, but I'm going to be a professional football player. And I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to learn from other people. And that's kind of our culture has lost those things. We want something that's quick and something that's fast. And we chase after education in the same way. We chase after careers in the same way. And so in some ways, we've lost the idea of what discipleship looks like, that it is life together over an extended period of time. So we jump into Acts chapter 4 towards the end, if you turn to uh, verse 32. And this is where we first meet Barnabas. But to kind of give you a context of this surrounding of what's happening in the early church, we'll start in verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. I'll stop there. If you continue, it jumps right into chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell land and they lie about it, and things don't end well for them. They end suddenly, but not well. So point number one that I want to as we look at Barnabas's life and say what do I take away from this into my own life of discipling others or being discipled point number one is discipleship requires commitment real biblical life together discipleship requires commitment commitment is not something we like to do and it is not something we like to do to a religious organization of any kind it's quite scary But here we see Barnabas and he is already known as the son of encouragement or son of exhortation. He is working with the disciples, but he's seeing needs that need to be met and more than likely because he was a Levite means he didn't own property there in Israel. So back in Cyprus, he probably owns property. He sells it all. He brings the money to the disciples and says, this is for however you see best so that the needy people go, cannot go without, that they can be taken care of. That is a large commitment there's been several people attributed to the quote of the last thing to be converted in a person is their wallet. But here we see Barnabas, he goes all in. He goes all in. I am in this. This land, this property, this money is no longer mine. It belongs to you to do with what seems best. We have a tendency as human beings not to jump all in on things. We like to test the water. See how cold it is? See how hot it is? Make sure it's just right. If not, we will find another place to go. But here Barnabas requires that he is all in. That he is doing things that the world around him would consider extremely foolish, not a wise investment. He's being done with his money. He's being done with his life. He sees it as he is committed to Christ. Number two, turn over to Acts chapter 11, if you would. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. And this is going to be our next, this point, the following two are going to come mainly from this passage. Starting in verse 19. Uh, After verse, chapter 4, by the way, um, the church is growing. You see them more and more life together, really starting back in Acts, beginning of 1 and 2. But then in 6, 7, and 8, you see this persecution happening. Stephen, one of the uh, men that are appointed as deacons to make sure that the people are being taken care of in the community, he is stoned to death because of his preaching. There's a man that is there witnessing it. Uh, He was holding the coats. He was probably the ringleader of it, and his name is Saul. Then as you go on in chapter 9, Saul ends up having a vision. He comes to know the Lord. He has no choice in the matter. And then Saul kind of ducks out, chapter 10, uh, Peter has a vision that now things are open to the Gentiles before this had been pretty kept in-house, if you will, to the Jews. And that brings us to chapter eleven. Um, now, after Stephen was killed, there was a great persecution among the Christians, and a lot of people fled. But what we see is the gospel continue to go out through the whole world as they had been commanded at the end of Matthew. And so even in persecution, God is seeing his plan happen. The Christians scatter. Barnabas stays in Jerusalem so chapter 11 verse 19 now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews some of them however men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help For the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Point number two Discipleship requires a trusting relationship. Discipleship requires a trusting relationship. Notice when news comes down from Antioch that these Greeks or Gentiles are in a church and it is growing and the gospel is spreading throughout these people who are not Jewish people, the disciples turn to Barnabas. They trust him. They've established this trust over time. They watched him watch probably their friend Stephen being killed by Saul. They watch uh, Barnabas and how he handles himself and the fact that he is committed, I mean, he sold this property, and he's coming alongside of people. It's how you get the nickname, son of encouragement or son of exhortation. And so when something arose, they said, we have to send somebody we trust. And so they send Barnabas. Barnabas goes, and he checks on things and is encouraged by them. But then over a course of a year, he was trusted by the elders of the church in Antioch to deliver a substantial gift to the believers in Jerusalem during a famine. And during a time of famine, when you're handing a lot of money to somebody to travel to another city, you have to have a lot of trust established in that person. And so Barnabas sets this example of somebody who is willing to develop this trusting relationship with others. And now point three goes hand in hand with this. Point three is discipleship is taking a chance on someone. Discipleship, more often than not, is taking a chance on someone. If you go back to verse 25, we have no idea what happened here. Saul is leading this huge persecution of Christians. He's converted and he just kind of disappears back to his home city of Tarsus. And chapter 11, verse 25 just says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I don't know if God told him to do that. I imagine that probably played into it. But at this time, I'm led to believe, and this is just my own opinion, nobody, no Christian is looking for Saul. They want no part of him. And Barnabas decides to go to Tarsus And he brings Saul back to Antioch with his growing church. It's so surprising to me. That's not the thing you think of doing. If your church is growing and you're seeing people come to know the Lord, you're like, you know who we need? That guy who's imprisoned my friends for being a Christian. That guy who kind of was the main witness in killing Stephen. That's who we need. So again, I don't know the reason he goes and he gets Saul. Why? Because discipleship is taking a stance on someone. Then Barnabas brings Paul, or Saul, to Jerusalem. He takes this gift, and he goes, you know what I'm going to bring with me? Saul. He's going to go with me to deliver this gift. And they get to Jerusalem, and I can only imagine what the believer's thoughts were when you see Saul, who, if you were a believer in Jerusalem, The chances of your family or your friends having been incredibly negatively affected by this one man is very high. And he walks in with Barnabas, who you trust. And then Barnabas says, hey, we're the disciples. I want them to meet this guy. And I can't imagine what the disciples were thinking. And, well, the Bible tells us they didn't really want to meet him. But Barnabas vouches for Paul when the disciples are concerned about meeting with this former persecutor of the church that they were trying to establish. And Barnabas takes Paul with him. And in Acts 13, you see it. Uh, Barnabas' name is listed first, which was not on accident, meaning that God called Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas would have really been the leader on that first missionary trip with Paul. Barnabas put so much trust in this former persecutor of the church. Barnabas leveraged his relationship with the disciples to say, you need to meet this guy. It's okay. He's with me. Barnabas would later go on to take a chance on his cousin, John Mark. In their first missionary journey, they are going to a place where you travel that's known for thieves and robbers through this mountainous area. And Mark says, ah, I'm out. No thanks. And he goes back. Later on, when they're getting ready to leave for another missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, you know who we should take? Mark, my cousin. The Bible tells us that there is actually this huge dispute between them. Paul said, no, I'm done with that guy. He abandoned us. And Barnabas says, I think he would be worthwhile. I think we should take him with us. Again, this is my putting conversation in this. But this dispute arose and... Paul ends up taking Silas and others to go on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas does take Mark with him and they go to Cyprus, and the gospel continues to be spread throughout this time. But Barnabas is willing to give people that second and third chance. He doesn't see their past. as we've said repeatedly, God, your their past no longer defines you, God does. Your past no longer defines you. God does. Barnabas says, "I know what this guy's done. My life has also been negatively affected because of him. But you know what? If this is what God wants me to be, so be it." Later on, in Colossians 4:10, it's uh, believed by historians that at this time Barnabas was uh, uh, he was stoned to death in somewhere in Greece. But Paul writes, as from prison, "Hey, bring John Mark with you. Barnabas's cousin. He would be of great use to me." So we see this relationship mended. Mark is John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is who wrote the gospel of Mark. And some historians believe he wrote that when he left them. He went back to Jerusalem and wrote his account of the gospel of Jesus. Discipleship is taking a chance on someone. And number four, discipleship is demonstrating grace and humility. Discipleship is demonstrating grace and humility. In Galatians chapter 2, we see that there is a point where Paul, formerly Saul the persecutor of the church, he has to confront Peter and Barnabas among others. Imagine that. Imagine Peter, who Jesus looked at and said, Upon this rock I will begin my, I I will form my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And now you are Paul. You've killed Peter's friends for their faith. But you see something that isn't right. And you have to go and not only confront Peter, this leader, this disciple, who is with Jesus, but also Barnabas, who came to Tarsus and found you and brought you back and invested in you. And what happened is they had, uh, they had gone to Antioch, Peter, and among other Jews, and they were eating at the table with Gentiles, which in the Jewish beliefs... They would have said that could never happen. They said it was better to, I'm sorry, that was a Samaritan. They said it's better to eat at a table with a pig than with a Samaritan. But their thoughts about Gentiles were not much better. And so they go, and and Peter had this vision that it was okay to spread the gospel to Gentiles. But now some Jews came into the city. These legalistic, what we call Judaizers, came into the city. And so Barnabas and Peter withdraw from sitting with Gentiles. And Paul says, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We said this was okay. Peter, remember the vision you had? You're setting a terrible example for the rest of believers by really this racist effort to take yourself away from Gentiles and exclude them. Either the gospel is for everyone or it is not. There is no in between. I I honestly have a hard time imagining what that would be like to confront Peter and Barnabas. And imagine being part Peter and Barnabas. Don't you know who I am? I'm Peter. I had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Jesus told me 3 times how much he loved me. But instead of being defensive, and again I wasn't there for this conversation and neither were any of you. I think Cell? no Okay. They had, sorry, sorry. but they had this grace and humility to understand the importance of the gospel they continue to serve together they continue to go on and support each other and and write kindly about each other and work together and serve the Lord together The thing is, if we are not willing to allow those we disciple to point out things in our lives, and we think we always have to be right, this demonstrates a great amount of pride on our part, demonstrating that our pride, our ego, and our identity is more important than the gospel being transforming our lives. We must be willing to be corrected in our lives and instructed as well. Now, if you're taking notes, you will see discipleship is, among other things, the four things we talked about tonight. Commitment, relationship established on trust, taking a chance on someone, and demonstrating grace and humility. If you want a good relationship in any way, with your spouse, with your immediate family, with your extended family, with your friends, with coworkers, these are very important attributes. So I want to go back through and kind of say, what does this mean for our life? Point number one, discipleship requires commitment. Last week, Rashawn said, and again, I'm just kind of getting you try try to watch it. He says, you cannot be partly pregnant. You're either pregnant or you are not. There is no in between. And that is where our commitment is. If discipleship takes a commitment, we have to go all in. We, it was a command by God, we cannot wait. We cannot put it off until things slow down. We cannot put it off. And yes, your family is the most important thing to disciple, but invite other people to come in with you to see how you do it. Discipleship requires commitment. You must jump in. A couple weeks ago, we said start somewhere. Point number two, discipleship requires a trusting relationship. Biblical discipleship comes from genuine trusted relationships, which happen in friendships over a period of time. And we've had people that have uh, come to church or any church I've been part of and they'll come to one thing and they'll be like, yeah, this church isn't for me. And I'm like, what? And they're Like, well, I just want somewhere where, you know, you have these long, trusted relationships. I was like, you've been here once. That's not how it happens. It's long periods of time. It's usually involves serving together. It usually involves being there when somebody is hurting or when you're someone being there when you're hurting. You celebrate good times together, bad times together. And it happens over this process of time. Going back to what we talked about in the context of when you were in an apprenticeship A lot of times the person would have to live with the people that he was learning from. They would spend so much more time together, not just doing carpentry or brick making, but their lives were so intertwined and invested. And the person that was doing the investing had the thought, this is the person that will be taking over for me, whether it be my son, whether it be an apprentice, but I am entrusting my business that may be fifth and sixth generation to this person to provide for their family. So these trusted relationships come when we allow other people to see into our lives and we are transparent with them as they are transparent with us. But that takes time. It takes time to build trust. Point number three, discipleship is taking a chance on someone. It was interesting, the first week of our uh, book study that we did, we asked the question, you know, who's the first person to disciple you? And as we've been doing this series, I've been thinking a lot about my own life and the different people who uh, were there for me. And the age of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, there was a lot of people that took chances on me, especially at the age of 18. I didn't deserve anything. I was running, I hated God, I hated my parents. I hated just about anything you could possibly hate. And there were people, there were friends of mine that were my own age and younger than me who demonstrated what having a real relationship with God was like. But not just them, but their parents who took me into their homes, looked out for me, gave me responsibility, trusted me to drive their children. They obviously had never seen me drive. But they gave me responsibility and they put trust in me. And I did not deserve any of it. And that still stands out to me that many years later. If I was 18, that was over five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But are you willing to put trust in somebody who may have hurt you in the past? Are you willing to try to see people as God sees them, that their past no longer defines them, and God does, and God says they are a new creation. God says they are forgiven, and God says he has given you grace. How are you demonstrating that grace to others? Are there relationships that you can leverage to help somebody else out? Somebody that maybe the world thinks doesn't deserve it. Again, Barnabas did that. For a persecutor of the church, what is God asking of you? Which leads into number four. Discipleship is demonstrating grace and humility. You see, the majority of discipleship that I have witnessed, it wasn't a unicorn. It wasn't this 120-year-old man who sits down with you for coffee once a week and you just gain waves of wisdom just from being there. The majority of effective discipleship is people whose lives are intertwined. The, the, the people who said, come into my home and you're going to see me do something that you don't agree with and that's okay, let's have a conversation about it. The people who say, hey, guess what? I saw you doing something that I, I got to talk to you about. And that is how that trust is established. It isn't this, I'm calling you out on something you did wrong and you're never going to see me again. It's, I'm calling you out on something that I'm concerned about and I'm there to help you. Majority of discipleship that I've seen is actually done with people who really aren't that much different, even in age or life experience. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So much of the discipleship in my own life and what I've observed is what I call peer discipleship. It's people who are willing to walk alongside of you, who maybe they aren't in that much different of a place in life, but they're willing to invite you in. Or are you willing to invite them in? i say, let's do this together. How do we glorify God in our relationship together? How do we encourage each other to read and study and pray and grow? We're to serve together. I think it's some of my best friends I've had since the time I was 18, and it's people that we serve together. We went through difficult times together. We went on crazy trips that most people think I'm exaggerating about when I tell them. Luckily, now I have Chris as a witness to most of them. Even just the time that we've spent here, that you've lived here, the stuff that you went through together. But we serve together, we help each other out. We're there when somebody else is hurting, they're there for us when you're hurting. This takes so much grace. Because in discipleship relationships, you will be hurt. And if you aren't hurt, chances are you're hurting the other person. And you need their grace. And they need your grace. And we need to humble ourselves and say, what am I doing? What is best for the other person that I'm involved with? And there's going to be times that you take somebody who is very new maybe doesn't know God yet or is new in knowing God and and you start discipling them and three years later, they're looking at you at your dining room table saying, hey, have you ever thought about why you do this? This seems wrong. And are you going to get defensive or are you going to have that humility and that grace to say, you know what? I've never thought of that before. But the overall picture about why we do life together is we do life together because we don't know How this sovereign creator God is going to use your faithfulness or my faithfulness to accomplish his will in somebody else's life or in our life. God has this plan. I was talking to somebody uh, this evening and they said, "Um, boy, I've come close to dying so many times. And God, that must be keeping me alive for some great purpose. I said, hey, I'm actually talking about this tonight. It may have been just the smallest little thing that you didn't know about that you did that change the trajectory of somebody else's life in ways that you don't know and may never know. Remember when Cam preached at the very beginning of this service, he said, about discipleship, it's helping somebody move from one spot to another. But when you think of a compass, these tiny little dots that are right here end up being miles and hundreds of miles apart. And you don't know what you're doing at this point to help change the trajectory of somebody else's life. Those people that were in my life from 18 to 22 had no idea that they were helping me do a 180 in the trajectory of my life. They had no idea the massive change that that would take. Somebody else in our, in our group said I, they thought about the person that came and had 10 minutes to share the gospel. And he was telling us that if that man had any idea how he would change not just my life, but my marriage, my children, and now my grandchildren, what a giant difference because he was willing to give 10 minutes we think about our life. Are we remaining faithful to God in these little things? He has asked us to remain faithful to him, to follow him in the smallest areas of our life. We have a tendency to want to compartmentalize our life. Well, that's work life and those are work friends. And then that's my like neighbors. So it's kind of, you know, that's a different relationship there because they live right next door to me. So that's a neighbor life. And then That's okay, these are church friends, but even at church, there's only a couple people I care for. So these are close, but I don't really want to, you know, let's plan a party for when we know they're out of town. And we do this so compartmentally, and that's not how the gospel is. The gospel should permeate every aspect of our life. That's why we say we have to preach the gospel over to ourselves every day, so that no matter who we come in contact with, we know that our life will affect them for the glory of God. That is life together with whoever God puts in our life, whoever God brings into our workplace, whoever God brings into our neighborhood or our home or whatever it is. We remain faithful in the little things because we have no idea how God is going to use that for his glory and how it changes the trajectory of somebody's life. So a couple weeks ago when I spoke, I just said start somewhere. Start somewhere. Tonight I'll leave you and I'm stealing this, maybe you've heard it, Just do it. Just do it. Because here's the thing, it does not rely on you. It is God. He has given us the command to go and make disciples. Not only that, but he has given us Jesus who who defeated sin and defeated death. For what he accomplished on the cross and the empty grave, we now have a reason The all-powerful reason. And he didn't leave us alone. He has given you the Holy Spirit to guide and direct you. He's given you his word. He wants to have that open conversation, relationship with you to demonstrate how much he loves you. And in response, he's saying, stay faithful to me. Walk with these other people, this life together. Take somebody, take a chance on somebody. Demonstrate grace and humility. Build that trusting relationship. Be committed. Just do it. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come to your word. We thank you for the example of Barnabas. The example of what it is to know you. The example of what it is to be able to see people that we can see as you see them. So often we like to think that we know what's best or we've been told that we need to protect ourselves. We need to look out for ourselves first and foremost. But Lord, you have given us a different example. An example to follow that puts others first. An example to follow of sacrifice. So Lord, as we move into this time of communion where we can reflect on what you did for us, that you were willing to give up the throne room of heaven to come to earth as a human being for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name.